Luke chapter 19, from verse 1 to 10. Let me read this for us. This is what God's word says. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he heard and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we ask now that as we have opened your word, that your spirit would open our eyes and attune our ears to see and hear the glory of the Son of Man who has come for the lost. O Lord, show us and reveal to us your grace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. At the center of the gospel is the fundamental truth that we are saved by grace alone meaning that we are saved not by our own efforts, not by our own good works, or even our spiritual potential, but we are saved solely and entirely on the basis of the undeserved mercy of God to us through Jesus Christ. And there's no greater joy and comfort in life than growing to fathom just how much that is true. That salvation and life in Christ, and everything is really entirely because of God's grace alone, that it is all His good work of revealing His immeasurable kindness to us for His own purpose of showcasing His glory. And the better we grasp this, the better we can see how truly free and pure and holy is the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that's why this account of Zacchaeus is so memorable and captivating to us as Christians. Because here we see the testimony of one of the worst sinners who found the grace of God, but even in his searching and his finding of it, the truth is that the grace of God had searched and found him first. We begin in verse 1, as we are told that Jesus now entered the city of Jericho and was passing through the city on his way to Jerusalem. And verse 2 introduces us to this man named Zacchaeus who lived in Jericho, and we find out that he was a tax collector. Now, of course, we've seen so many instances of Jesus encountering and referring to tax collectors throughout Luke's gospel. And the reason is because they were viewed as the epitome of a sinner, the very archetype of ungodliness, uh, the, the paragon of immorality. Again, by way of reminder for the final time, because this is the last time we'll see uh, a tax collector uh, account in Luke's gospel. The reason they were viewed that way, uh, Jewish tax collectors were viewed with such disdain because they collected taxes from their fellow Jews on behalf of the Roman government. 
But the great offensiveness of it all was that tax collectors were given almost unrestrained authority from the Roman government to collect as much as they wished, as long as Rome got, Rome got what they uh, demanded. And so these tax collectors, they were motivated by greed and selfish gain. They abandoned any sense of conscience or ethics. And they would use their occupation to extort money from the people. In other words, these Jews who worked as tax collectors, they collected way more than they were supposed to. And they pocketed the rest for their own personal gain. And they had the Roman authority to do so. And the cherry on top of it all was the fact that they were doing all of this against their own fellow Jewish people. And they were doing this in service and allegiance to the Romans who took over the land of Israel and subjugated the Jews under their reign. And so tax collectors were those who effectively sold out their fellow countrymen to the hostile foreign government, all for personal gain. Hence they were viewed, rightly so, as the scum of Jewish society, totally immoral and unethical, selfish, vile sinners. And so this is who we're dealing with. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. But... He wasn't just any tax collector. Notice how verse 2 says that he was a chief tax collector. This meant that he was the godfather of the tax collector mafia, if you will. He was the head of the cartel, the collector of tax collectors. He was at the top of the pyramid scheme. Now imagine what a greedy, vile man he must have been. Now, look, we all know that Zacchaeus gets saved, and it's a wonderful story with a happy ending. But before we jump there, just take a moment to consider and get to know who Zacchaeus really was all his life. What kind of a man he was. He was the ungodliest man with the dirtiest soul. By his life, you could see that his pride and self-centeredness was preeminent in his rotten heart. He valued money and self-serving pleasure over the basic well-being of other people. He had no problem robbing other people as long as he got whatever he wanted. And look, he was very rich, of which Jesus said just earlier in chapter 18, that it is impossible for a rich man to enter God's kingdom. How much more than a man who made himself rich at the expense of others? You see, Zacchaeus, being the chief tax collector... He was therefore, in effect, the chief of sinners, the worst sinner in all of Jericho, among all the land. But it's interesting how we find in verse 3 that Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. Apparently, he had heard about Jesus uh, throughout his time there through the grapevine. And he was probably surprised and curious to see for himself how this Jesus was called a friend of sinners he was dining with tax collectors, even prostitutes, and all kinds of sinners. And maybe Zacchaeus even heard that within the inner circle of Jesus' 12 disciples was Levi, a former tax collector. And so perhaps out of bewilderment, he wanted to see with his own eyes this Jesus who welcomed sinners to himself. But more so than mere curiosity, the fact that Zacchaeus was seeking after Jesus, it shows that evidently, all the riches and selfish gain had left him empty. Though he had taken everything he wanted, 
Here we see that he was still seeking, searching for something more. He was lost. He was still trying to find his way. What a living parable of the deceit of sin. Sin promises joy and pleasure outside of God, away from his good and perfect will, expressed through his loving commandments. But in the end, as we believe it and pursue it, we find ourselves in this unending quest for true meaning and happiness. And it never ends. It never satisfies. In fact, consider how Luke, the author, seems to purposefully organize his gospel account in a way where as Jesus comes to the region of Jericho, Luke records two vastly different individuals and brings them together side by side. Last week we saw at the end of chapter 18, the blind beggar who was miserably poor. And here today we see at the beginning of chapter 19, the chief tax collector who was filthy rich. And yet, they are both in need of what Christ alone can give. The blind beggar was physically blind, unable to see. Zacchaeus could see just fine. There was nothing wrong with his eyes. And yet, they were both seeking to see who Jesus was. They were both hoping to attain sight. You see two people on the opposite sides of the spectrum of life. And yet it's all the same in the end. Because apart from knowing and seeing Jesus, we are all empty. Whether we have everything in the world or nothing in the world. Friends, all the money in the world can't buy your happiness. You can live your wildest dreams of unrestrained pursuit of every self-centered desire. But at the end of the day, living for yourself will never satisfy. And Zacchaeus knew it all too well. His heart was still seeking for something. And having heard about Jesus, he thought, well, I need to go see him for myself. Maybe there's something there about him. Something about this Jesus that I keep hearing about. And so hearing that Jesus was now in Jericho, Zacchaeus was trying to go see him. But we're told in verse 3 that on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Zacchaeus was a short little guy. He wasn't just a little short, below average. But it's likely that he was exceptionally short. So much so that even as a full-grown adult, he couldn't see over anyone. He must have been below the average shoulder level. I don't know why, but I always imagine a Danny DeVito kind of a figure with the whole New York Wall Street accent and all, which is quite befitting the tax collector. But this whole mention about the height of Zacchaeus is not to make a disparaging comment on his physical stature, but actually to highlight his determination and initiative in seeking after Jesus. Because it says in verse 4 that because he was so short and had failed to get a view of Jesus with everyone towering over him, which, by the way, implies that previous attempts had already been made. And so Zacchaeus resolved this time to do whatever he could to overcome that obstacle. So verse 4, presumably at the next opportunity, Zacchaeus ran on ahead, ahead of the crowd, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus where he was about to pass that way. Now again, just notice and think about how earnest his desire must have been to see Jesus. Zacchaeus went up to the tree and camped there like a little squirrel or something for who knows how long and just waited there until Jesus and the crowds arrived. This is some serious determination. 
Look at his pursuit of Christ. And thus far, it would seem that Zacchaeus was the one doing all the seeking after Jesus. It must have all been because of his initiative, his spiritual interest, his decision-making to go and look for Jesus, and that even on the treetop. Surely Zacchaeus was the one who chose that day to come to Jesus. And yes, from man's perspective, but from the perspective of the eternal and sovereign will of God, no, Zacchaeus was not ultimately the seeker. But Zacchaeus was the one who was sought after by the Son of Man who came to seek and to save the lost. Look at verse 5. As Jesus comes to the area where Zacchaeus was waiting, porched upon a tree, and as Jesus got there, heard some ruffling up there. What's that? And saw something that was a lot bigger than a squirrel. He looked up and saw Zacchaeus hanging out on a branch. Now, what did Jesus say to Zacchaeus. What were his first words when he looked up and saw Zacchaeus? Jesus didn't ask, Hey there, little monkey, who are you? What's your name? What are you doing up there? Jesus didn't ask anything. Rather, Jesus called to him by name. Zacchaeus. Can you imagine the chills that must have gone down his spine when he heard that? How does he know who I am? How does he know me? You know, this is one of the more underrated miracles in Jesus' earthly ministry. How does he know me? Because in that moment, it was the will of God the Father for Christ to exercise divine omniscience in order to speak to Zacchaeus, not just to his ears, but to penetrate into his soul. It was God sovereignly calling his lost sheep to himself by name, whistling Zacchaeus home. We might think that Zacchaeus was the one who knew Jesus first, who had heard of him first, with the hopes that Jesus would come to know him. But it was the other way around. It was Jesus who knew Zacchaeus before Zacchaeus even thought to go up on that tree. It was Jesus who foreknew Zacchaeus in eternity, before the world was created. And he had now entered that created world as man to search out and rescue his lost sheep, whom he had sovereignly and graciously chosen as his own. And so Jesus says to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Again, Jesus didn't ask, Zacchaeus, may I stay at your house today? But he commanded by the authority of sovereign grace, Zacchaeus, chief of sinners, I must and I will stay at your house today. Now look, this was inconceivable to hear. Because for Jesus to stay at his house, Jesus wasn't asking Zacchaeus for a favor, okay? It wasn't because all the hotels and Airbnbs were booked. But to stay at one's house was a sign of the deepest fellowship. 
This was an outrageous thought. Which is why the crowds all grumbled in verse 7. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, a sinful man, a wretched man. Doesn't Jesus know what Zacchaeus is like? He's crooked and depraved. Fellowship with him? You know, as Christians, we really have a problem with misusing the word fellowship many times. I think that's the word we misuse more than we misuse the word God. It's the word fellowship. Because if we use the word so loosely to refer to any social interaction or any fun activity that involves a church in some way. And so whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, hey, let's have fellowship together. Here's the coffee and the donuts. I mean, no, we, we, we want you to have the coffee and the donuts. We don't have any today, but at the women's event you will. But look, fellowship, the word fellowship means brotherhood. It means sharing in Christ, partaking in the life of Christ together. It's, it's relishing the bond and unity of our common Savior. He is our fellowship. By definition, believers can't have fellowship with non-believers because they are not yet fellow children of God. Now, we want them to be. We pray and plead with them to be, to receive Christ by faith and be saved by His grace and enter His kingdom. But as it is, fellowship is communion with God through Christ. It's when God's people consciously rejoice in the gospel together with one another. And so the point is this, that light has no fellowship with darkness. 2 Corinthians 6.14 The holy cannot share and partake and mingle with the unholy. And so there's a sense in which we should be shocked that Jesus would think to lodge at the home of Zacchaeus. How is it that the holy God incarnate would enter into this fallen world and to enter into the home and inner life of one who is the chief of sinners and to fellowship with him well because that's precisely the gospel that god has done such a wondrous thing that christ came into the world to reconcile sinners to god through him to restore fellowship between the holy god and unholy sinners like us because he came to bear their sin and iniquity on the cross. That Christ came for the unclean to take on their uncleanness and to be punished in their stead and to give to them his cleanness, his perfect spotless righteousness. In Christ alone is the good news that sinners, even the chief of sinners, can fellowship with God once again. And know oh, how Zacchaeus knew this and felt this instinctively in his soul. He was amazed that Jesus said such a thing. I must stay at your house today. I must abide in your home today. And so verse 6, he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. He hurried. There was no delay. Because hearing those words thrilled the heart of this vulgar, vicious, chief tax collector. By the way, what does this show you? Every callous, hard-hearted sinner, in the secrecy of their hearts, there is a gaping void within, hidden behind the very thin and fragile walls that they've constructed. No matter how tough and proud they act, no matter how arrogant in unbelief they may be, 
No matter how confident and self-sufficient they may purport to be in not needing God, the truth is, deep inside, they are just lost sheep needing to be found. They are lost, scared, frail little orphans just wanting to be loved and satisfied by one who is the almighty, infinite, perfect Father in heaven. Sure, they suppress the truth as sinners. Uh, I'm not saying that people are good inside. But I'm saying that there is an unavoidable truth that betrays their outward veneer. And it comes out from time to time. And here for Zacchaeus, how revealing. This tough, nasty little cookie who had no qualms about destroying other people for selfish gain. Who... By his life, he seemed to be so psychopathic because he had zero interest or he had complete apathy toward the basic concept of love, it would seem. And yet here at the voice of Christ and the sound of infinite holy love calling his name and entering into his home, his heart of stone is melted. And he hurries down and receives Christ with childlike joy because he was found by the glory of God's sovereign, irresistible grace. Again, yes, it, it, it looks like Zacchaeus took the initiative to go see Jesus. But even so, at best, it was just to be a spectator, wasn't it? Just to go see from the tree what he's all about. But look at the grace of God searching him out. And how all of these dominoes of salvation began, began falling upon the divine initiative of Jesus, calling to him by name, inviting himself into his home, yea, invading into his home without waiting for his approval, commanding Zacchaeus to open the doors that he may enter and dwell with him. All of this was unprompted and unrequested by Zacchaeus. It was all by the sovereign will of God. What a picture of, of the glory of God's salvation by His grace alone from beginning to end. Christian, do you realize the extent of what God has done for you in saving you and taking you to Himself? However you came to know and trust in Christ, do you understand that you were not the ultimate initiator? You are not the fall, first domino to fall. But He was the one who sought you out for nothing but the good pleasure of revealing His infinite sovereign grace and kindness. Have you taken the time to reflect on this in hindsight? For example, some of you got saved in college. Okay, let's just use that as an example. Okay, so you got saved in college because why? What happened? How? You went to a Bible study or you went to a church service and you heard the gospel message and you chose to believe. And yes, you did. You, you did consciously and willfully confess your sin and put your trust in Jesus to save you from your sin. But let's ask this. How did you end up going to that Bible study or that church service? Chances are someone invited you. Did you have anything to do with that person inviting you? Did you invite that person first to invite you? I mean, do you, do you think it was an accident? Just, just perchance? 
Or do you not see the sovereign will of God at work to use His people as instruments to whistle you home? Okay, well, let's say then that you did go to that Bible study or whatever because for some reason you woke up that morning and you decided, today I'm going to search for a Bible study on my college campus. All right, fine, let's, let's play that game. Let me ask you, how did you end up in that college? Maybe there was another school you really wanted to go to, but to your disappointment, you didn't get in. And so you had to go to this school. But it was at this school, on this campus, that the right ministry at the right time reached your soul. And maybe you say, no, well, I did consciously choose to go to the school. This is the only school that I applied to. Okay, how did you end up in this country? Did you choose to be born where you were? Did you choose your birthplace? And have all the series of events lead you to where you you were to go to school there? Or if you immigrated like I did, did you choose to be born to parents who would be providentially guided and enabled to leave their country and come to this one? I mean, this whole getting saved in college thing is just one of an infinite number of examples. And even within this example, we can permutate the details endlessly. We can go on forever. With all the different scenarios. But the point is this. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who can fathom the mystery of his eternal wisdom and will? Some of us, God called us while we were on the sycamore tree of the workplace. Through our co-workers or, or talking with our neighbors. Or YouTube. Or others, God brought upon us a particular suffering and pain to bring us to our knees. And only then and there on our knees did we finally have ears to hear his voice. But do you see, whatever the case, whoever you are, Christian, whatever your testimony, everything stems back to God's amazing sovereign grace in setting his love upon you first pursuing you and orchestrating everything in your life to bring you to Him. As Jesus explicitly said in John 15, 16 to His disciples, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. Every one of us, Jesus has so lovingly called our name. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, He is calling your name too. How do I know? You're here. In this church in San Ramon that's preaching the gospel. How'd you come here? Do you really think you came here just by arbitrary chance? Do you really think that your life is a series of random accidents? How pointless and meaningless and depressing. You're just a random number generator. That's all you are. Whether it's a friend who brought you here or family or the internet, don't you see that it is all God's hand carrying you here so personally so that you might hear the gospel of his salvation. 
Can't you hear Jesus calling out to you so lovingly just as he did to Zacchaeus? And he's calling you to come down from your sycamore tree and to meet with him at Calvary's tree, that wooden cross, where he gave his life for sinners like you and me. He is calling you to confess that you're a sinner and to trust in his saving work on the cross, his grace and mercy poured out for sinners. Friend, come down from your tree. Hurry down and receive him joyfully and find the satisfaction of new life in him. And that's exactly what we see next in this passage, don't we? That doesn't end with just the invitation or the call. But we see the new spiritual life that was birthed in Zacchaeus as he received Christ into his home and his heart. Again, the crowds grumbled in verse 7. He's a sinful man. How could Jesus go and stay with them? You know, they were probably victims of Jesus, or of, not Jesus, of Zacchaeus' extortion. It was likely at their expense that he got rich since they were residents of Jericho. But then Zacchaeus stood up in verse 8 and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. All that he had gained from the pockets of others, Zacchaeus now declares that he will give half away to the needy and that he will repay those whom whom he has extorted quadruple. Now let's make something clear. Zacchaeus was not trying to earn salvation by this good work of charity and restitution. Because Jesus had already and freely called his name and promised to enter his home before any of this. It was not contingent on Zacchaeus giving his money away. And notice what Jesus says in response in verse 9. Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Salvation came to this house before Zacchaeus ever thought to make such a statement. Because Jesus came to this house. In fact, you know the name Jesus, Yeshua. You know what it means? It means salvation. And so when Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house, the people and Zacchaeus would have heard it literally. Today, Yeshua has come to this house. And indeed he has. And Jesus is salvation. Knowing him. Being united to him. Him dwelling with us. He is salvation. And so Zacchaeus was not saved by works, but by faith in the grace of Christ poured out to him while he was still on the tree. Hence Jesus says, even a chief tax collector can be a true son of Abraham because those who trust Jesus at his word, those of faith are the sons of Abraham, Galatians 3.7. Which means then, that Zacchaeus' statement and his resolve to give his belongings. It was the organic overflow of the heart that was so overwhelmed with the grace of Jesus Christ that Christ should be so pleased to join in fellowship with the wretch like him. It was the expression of his worship and thanksgiving for what Christ has done. And this, my friends, is the transformative power of God's sovereign grace. It births new life in the heart of a sinner. 
I mean, are you, are you taking aback when, when you hear Zacchaeus say, I'll give away half of all my money. And forget about the fourfold restitution for a second. Half of all of your money. I mean, what happened? What could make him seriously say that and follow through on that? It was simply this, that the grace of God changed him. That's what happened. Zacchaeus had lived for money his whole life. But on this day, from the treetop, he found, or rather he was found by, a greater treasure, a deeper satisfaction. And suddenly, money was not so important to him anymore. Because his blinded eyes were opened to the majesty of Christ. And you know, when Zacchaeus said all this, he was actually going even beyond the Old Testament law. He said he would repay fourfold for anyone he's cheated. But according to Leviticus 5.16 and Numbers 5.5, normal restitution for an offense was to repay a fifth as a penalty, 20% on top of whatever you were supposed to return. And even if you were to categorize it as just pure theft and robbery, then the penalty was double, 200%, according to Exodus 22. But here Zacchaeus says, I will happily repay 400%. What's the deal? Well, let this show us that the supernatural power to do the law, and even to do so over-enthusiastically as it were, it comes from receiving and drinking deeply from the fountain of God's sovereign grace. It's when we comprehend the glory of His love for us and we see how good He is, how good are His commandments. And we are enabled by the Spirit of God to say, I delight to do the will of God. Christian, this is how He empowers you to obey his commandments, and to walk and pursue holiness. It is not by natural strength found in yourself and beholding your own spiritual prowess or commitment to Him. But it is the enabling power that comes from being captivated by the wonder of His amazing grace that is sufficient to save and sanctify even the chief of sinners. For, for Zacchaeus, it, it was nothing but the joy of salvation and his inexpressible thankfulness to the all-sufficient grace of Christ. It was that which energized him to be so holy, to think and say such a thing that was so set apart from the world, to let go of the things that belonged to him, as though he no longer belonged to the world and the world not to him. Because that's exactly what happened that day that he came to belong to Christ and his kingdom. You see, Christian, if you're struggling in your walk with the Lord, you need to learn to pause and rest in the greatness of Jesus' love for you. Therein you will find the sanctifying power through the Spirit of God who works to confirm and assure that holy everlasting love in your heart. And church, what a wonderful mystery. How this all began as Jesus called Zacchaeus by name. And again, we might ask, how did Jesus know 
Zacchaeus' name? And well, the truest answer is this. Because the name Zacchaeus was written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Zacchaeus thought he was seeking Jesus, but it was actually the Son of Man who had come to seek and to save this lost tax collector. And Christian, this is true for each and every one of us. What a glorious mystery of the sovereign grace of God. Who can boast of anything before him but only to thank him forever and find such happiness in not only knowing him but even more in being known by him eternally. Church, may we grow to better fathom and comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. As Jesus reminded his disciples earlier in chapter 10, verse 20, Do not rejoice in this, that you are doing great things in my name, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray together. Our gracious and sovereign God and Father, we thank you for the mystery of your will being revealed to us in Christ. And the impenetrable depths of your love that confounds even us, your children. Lord, why is it that you should so love lost sinners like us? On what basis, for what reason, should you ever think and determine to set your love upon us before the foundation of the world? And it is for that that we praise you and we worship you. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us to grasp the heights and depths of your love for us in Christ. O oh Lord, we confess many things, our failings, our stumblings, our remaining residue of sin. But Lord, above it all, what we confess is what a forgetful people we are. That having tasted your great love, having received it, having been found by it, oh, how we struggle with unbelief. We believe and yet you must help our unbelief. But we thank you that that's what you have done through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to help us, that you have commanded us to do this in remembrance of Christ, the love of God who has come down for us. And so as we now prepare to receive the bread and the cup, we ask that you would help us to receive it by faith and that you would use it to confirm that sovereign love to us, your children. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.